This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Have students made greater progress in math and reading over the past 50 years? Are minority students making faster progress than white students? Are students from low socioeconomic backgrounds making more rapid progress than those from high socioeconomic progress? Well, the answers are pretty clear to a lot of pundits out there. They say no, no, no to all three questions. But Danny Shaquille and myself have just released a paper on the Education Next website that brings together all the studies out there that have looked at trends in student achievement over the past 50 years, and we find the pundits wrong on all three points. The correct answers are yes, students have made steady progress. Yes, students of color have made more progress. And yes, students from low socioeconomic backgrounds have made more progress. So to discuss this paper, I have with me Danny Shaquille, who is the director of EG West Center for Education Policy and a professor at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. So, Danny, you know, you were a postdoc at uh, the Program on Education Policy uh, here at Harvard, uh, and we worked on this paper for how many years was it? Uh, like three years. Uh, three years, <laughs> at least. Uh, so congratulations on uh, placing it in a major academic journal and, and also in Education Next. And uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Um, thank you very much, Paul. It's a pleasure and congratulations to you as well. Well, Danny, I've already told the headlines, but there's one big surprise yet to be announced. Students have made more progress in math than reading. How big a difference is the progress in math and reading? So Paul, it was a striking finding to us when we did it. And the difference is quite large. So much so that in mathematics, the scores have grown by almost 95% of a standard deviation over 50 years, which translates to almost four years of additional learning. In contrast, in reading, the scores have grown by only 20% of a standard deviation per decade. Uh, now that translates to only one year's worth of additional learning. Yeah, that's a huge difference, isn't it? So we speculate a bit about why that is the case, because we don't have any proof as to why that is, but, but what's your best guess? So, Paul, uh, there was this book by Steven Pinker uh, where he mentions about the meta-analysis by Paisnik and Voracek, who are two psychologists, and they study the Flynn effect. Now, the Flynn effect has been known by the name of James Flynn, who was a political scientist from New Zealand. And in 1980s, he noticed that IQ was consistently increasing across the globe. Now that estimate turned out to be almost three points per decade, uh, which translates to almost 21% of a standard deviation per decade. Now Paisnik and Voracek, the two researchers in 2015, did a meta-analysis of almost one century of IQ studies. Now in their meta-analysis, from 271 studies across 31 countries that involved 
almost 4 million people, they bifurcated the Flynn effect into various components. The first is fluid reasoning. And the second is crystallized knowledge. I understand that fluid reasoning is this is a fancy psychological concept that, uh, you know, I only encountered uh, once I got into this study. And I'm sure our listeners don't really know what fluid reasoning is. <laughs> Come to think of it, how, what kind of reasoning can't be fluid? <laughs> so fluid reasoning is 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 uh, well what is fluid reasoning so in the iq literature fluid reasoning is defined as the ability to analyze abstract relationships now these relationships could be in the form of associations with recognizing patterns or applying logic to novel situations so so it's just sort of a sort of i call it pure brain power it's really good in math because that's sort of what mathematics is, right? Exactly. It's sort of like playing chess. It's just yes. this sheer brain power is at work. I just am playing my grandson a chess game the other night. I was I was upset. He was so good. I just <laughs> his brain is better than mine. And so uh I, you know, I have a little more experience, so I came out all right, but it was it was a, it's a battle. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he hadn't had a lot of training so it's just you know and that's the way math is you know there's a lot of math is that way so so that's fluid reasoning and then what's the other concept crystallized knowledge what's crystal yes so crystallized knowledge is the second concept in iq and it is defined as the ability to synthesize and interpret observed relationships in the environment now, these could be rooted in facts, knowledge, or skills that can be recalled when needed. So this is more like reading, because you got to really know something about exactly. the world out there. You can't just, you know, have this knowledge of how to manipulate things. You you have to you have to understand the real world. So that's more like reading. So, and and this uh, team of psychology uh, sort of uh, psychometricians actually distinguish between these two and they say fluid reasoning has improved a lot more than crystallized knowledge do I have exactly that so so we're saying that's probably what's going on here is that um the the human brain has more capacity today than it did 50 years ago and that is particularly important for mathematics Yes, exactly. Uh, we find that in the period we are studying, the growth in fluid reasoning and crystallized knowledge is almost uh, parallel to what we find from our study. Well, so um, why? Why is it that the brain has got greater capacity? Why is there a Flynn effect, in other words? I mean, we're finding the Flynn effect as well. Yeah. Lots of other people have found the Flynn effect. We're finding it again as it applies to math and, and reading. And so um, what is the what are the arguments out there as to why the brain capacity of young people today should be greater than it was when I was young? Uh, well, Paul, there are many explanations out there, uh, and most of them can be done away with. However, the one that truly stands out, which we also use, 
is the effect of improved nutrition and reduction in contagious diseases. So in short, better health and better nutrition is the key. And that is most likely to affect uh, people at younger age. And we, that's where we find the largest growth in math uh, at younger ages. So we are really making the argument that a lot of the improvement in health in our society, mothers have better nutrition when they are carrying a baby in the womb and the little a child uh, when first born is also being uh, better taken care of and is getting better health and is less subject to it. People don't have mumps and in chicken box like I yes. do, right? They, this, a lot of those contagious diseases uh, are no longer uh, widespread. Exactly, Paul. And uh, I mean, you must have seen in, uh, in your young age how many diseases were there. And even when I grew in India, I had exposure to chicken pox and so many diseases around me. And now I don't see that happening anymore. You know, this is sort of amazing. It's a worldwide phenomenon. You know, this is not this improvement in math. We also find it in some data. Uh, well, you looked at some of the uh, Tim's data, as I recall, and you looked at uh, and you found some the same kind of progress in, in many other countries. Yeah, Paul, uh, this phenomena is most clearly visible in international data in Tim's and Pearl's. So we find larger growth in Tim's uh, at grade four, uh, somewhat reduced gains at grade eight. And when we look at pearls in reading, we find less gains as compared to the math in Tim's. So basically, we're looking for an explanation here that something other than just in the United States, we're looking for something that is changing all over the world and math uh, performance is improving more rapidly than reading performance were in many countries across uh, yeah, Paul, I would say these gains are secular and they apply globally. So indeed, the Flynn effect is the key. Well, okay, so let's move on uh, to exactly how you, uh, you put together the data. And I say you because you were the person who assembled all of this information on student progress. Uh, can you tell our listeners how, many, how massive a job it was and, and what were some of the studies that are, are uh, the basis for your finding? So Paul, it was indeed a massive data set. Uh, we basically collected all the available nationally representative as well as psychometrically linked tests, which are administered in the US. And there are only five of them. The first one is the long-term trend NAPE, which begins in 1971 and goes until 2012. That's the second the National is, Assessment of Educational Progress, right? NAEP yeah, is, the long-term trend version of the NAEP. The, the nation's report card, we call it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so NAEP we, is one, yeah, long-term NAEP. And we have the main NAEP, which you uh, identified as the nation's report card. Uh, it begins in 1990, and we have data until 2017. The third one is the uh, TIMS data which is administered cross country. We have data from 1995 until 2015. Fourth, we have the PEARLS data, which is for reading for grade four, starting in 2001 until 2016. And last, we have PISA uh, for 20 years uh, from 2000 until 2015. So we have these five massive data sets. We have student level information. Uh, obtained uh, from the U.S. Department of Education through a license, 
and we are able to use all these uh, data sets across the grade and age levels in math and reading and to make sense of the trends. So yeah, I know it's a, it, how many observations did you say? So for the US, we have almost 7 million observations and we also have four and a half million for other countries which we use. So um, yeah, a lot of work, but it's important to realize this all ends in 2017. Uh, we don't have anything post COVID. Uh, so we really can't talk about exactly what's happening now or talk yeah. about what's been happening over the historically. But yes. eve of the pandemic, this is what had been happening. Yeah, I mean, we can carefully say that our study covers the summary of the US student progress up to COVID. Well, so uh, Danny, let's move on to this second big finding that students of color have made more progress than white students. Just how much of a difference is there between students of color and white students in the progress they've made? So Paul, again, this is the second striking finding uh, which we had. And generally the discussion is that uh, the achievement gaps are worsening. However, what we find is that the gains made by ethnic minorities, uh, that is Hispanic, Blacks and Asians, both in math and reading at every age level, they surpass the gains made by their white counterparts. Uh, the estimates uh, differ by age and subject, but I can give you one example that overall, if you look at Asians in both subjects, they have advanced by almost uh, two more years worth of learning in math and three years more in reading as compared to the gains made by their white counterparts. Well, I mean, that is truly amazing, but we've heard about tiger moms before. So, you know, I, it doesn't really um, surprise me. It may not surprise our listeners to learn that the agents are finding a way in American society that is truly phenomenal. Uh, but how about uh, African-Americans? Uh, a lot of people out there are saying that, uh, you know, we have not really provided them the opportunity that they uh, that they deserve in our society and that uh, the you know the gaps are as, as wide as ever so so how much of a change do we see for African Americans I mean the change for African Americans is massive uh, the original uh, white black gap uh, has been reduced to half in this time period. Uh, in other words, if you look at the median rate of progress made by the average black student, it actually exceeds the gain made by average white student by almost 10% of a standard deviation per decade. Now, it is true both in math and reading. Uh, if we translate that number into years of learning, it comes out to almost two years worth of learning over this 50 year period. So, so it's not really that much less than the progress that are being made by Asians. It is less, but it isn't a lot less. And so it's really a remarkable story of progress as well. Now, how about the progress being made by the Hispanic students? So uh, for Hispanics as well, we see that the uh, original uh, black, oh, sorry, white and Hispanic gap has been reduced into almost half of what it was. Uh, 
Uh, however, we do see that the gains made by Hispanic students are more pronounced in math than in reading, which could be a function of 78% uh, uh, of English language learners comprising of the US Hispanic community. So I said there's a language challenge there that's part of the story probably. So now um, here's a question, why? Why are we seeing more progress by students of color? Uh, is this, what are the, what are the factors? Because every, you know, presumably nutrition is benefiting people generally. I mean, in reduction of contagious diseases, some of these things that we've been talking about should be operating across the board, uh, affecting white, black, Asian, Hispanic students in similar ways. Um, what do you think are the drivers of the progress? So Paul, uh, the Flynn effect uh, uh, is observed across groups. So uh, that cannot be the sole explanation for the disproportionately large gains made by minorities as compared to their white, white counterparts. Now, we don't have uh, full data to explain the findings, but we can theorize that uh, because of, let's say, changes the, in family income for the Black community, parental education, family size, and also a lot of education interventions such as desegregation, civil rights laws, or uh, interventions such as Head Start and preschool programs, even compensatory education for the low SES students. These all could be contributing to the equity story. So you're saying that it could be factors in the family. It could be factors in the school. It's probably both of these things are, are, are driving it. But we, we ourselves just don't really have the data to, to, uh, to answer that question definitively. Yeah. Um, so then the, the final Big question, although I got one more beyond that, but the big question that we haven't discussed here is the difference between the uh, high and low socioeconomic students. Um, uh, is there a big difference there? Yeah, Paul, and again, this was a surprising finding. Uh, given the discussion around this topic out there, uh, everyone believes uh, that the low SES students are doing worse than they were in the past. However, as we found, particularly at the younger age level, uh, if anything, the gains have been made uh, largely by the uh, low SES students. Uh, there are also gains by the top uh, SES students, uh, but those gains are less in comparison to the gains made by their low SES counterparts. So, um, you know, there's a you know, this is this is really contrary to uh, a study out there that's been cited thousands of times and made headlines in major newspapers across the country. And that's by Sean Reardon, who has always said that the gap between the rich and the poor has grown enormously in the last 50 years. Uh, almost as I mean, he's, I think he's saying it's three quarters of a standard deviation growth in the gap between the rich and the poor. And we're finding that the gap is closing, at least to some extent. It's not, you know, it's not as big as the gap between uh, racial and ethnic groups, but the change hasn't been as big, but it, there's still a noticeable improvement 
of low SES students relative to the high SES students. So, so why are we getting results different from those that Sean Reardon uh, got in his uh, uh, very influential paper? Uh, so Paul, two things here. First, regarding the study by Sean Reardon, uh, he relies on tests which are not necessarily comparable. Uh, in other words, the tests used in his study uh, are not psycho necessarily psychometrically linked. Some of them are, but not all. Uh, that is one reason uh, for the findings he sees in his data. Uh, moreover, some surveys were, were reported by parents, otherwise students, and students may not have a, a good knowledge of the income made by their parents. Having uh, said that, in our study, we are relying on uh, psychometrically linked tests over this time period. We use uh, various indicators of SES. I can mention two of them. So we use the parents' education reported by their children and the number of items in their home, such as books and computers. We construct a SES index from these two variables. We also run separate analysis for each of the variables. Now, in all of our analysis, we generally find that the gains made by the bottom uh, quartile of this indicator is always larger than the gains made by the top quartile. So we clearly see that the uh, SES achievement gaps are reducing uh, at younger age, less so at middle ages. However, we do find some increase in the SES achievement gap at the high school level. Yet that increase is not large. It is a minor increase. So if there's anything in our data set that uh, um, is supportive of uh, the Sean Reardon hypothesis, it's that if you look only at 17-year-olds or students in the 12th grade, and you just look at their progress, you do see as some greater progress by the high SES students relative to the low SES students. If you look at kids that are tested at a younger age, you don't see that. You see most of the progress being made by the low SES group. But that raises the question, why is there a difference? You know, if the low SES kids were doing well uh, in the early years of schooling, ninth grade, third grade, eighth grade, uh, eighth grade, uh, uh, fourth grade, all that, all, their, all that looks very positive. And then all of a sudden at age 17, you get this, this sort of reversal. So what's going on here? So again, Paul, this is a hypothesis we can put out. Um, there's discussion uh, that older students are taking the test less seriously especially in the recent years. Some say that the graduation rates are rising and they have broadened the pool of older students who take these tests at the high school level. Uh, it could be that the culture around high school uh, peers has changed. Now, any factor could be contributing to this outcome, but we do not know exactly which one variable is the largest contributor. Right. And I think the big point here is that it's not a, a big time number. It, this is a, these are small differences between yes. across socioeconomic groups.
But the, but the main takeaway, Paul, is that we are not finding uh, anything similar to what Sean Reardon has reported. So right now, I and I must say that you know we're not the only ones that are finding that. There's a number of other studies coming out here. There's one that's uh, done by uh, a Harvard group uh, that Tom Kane is associated with. It's also finding that uh, uh, things uh, uh, have improved more for low income than high income students and. Uh, and and uh, Rick Hanyashek uh, has a new paper out. He's revised his older paper on this, and and I'm also been working with him on that project. And he's finding the same thing. So we're, it's not like this is just uh, our study. His study is looking more and more like uh, it was sort of uh, a great study in the sense that it put a lot of uh, it, it it motivated us to look at this question and motivate a lot of other people. So it's, it was a it was a pathbreaking study, but I don't think it's right, actually. Yeah, Paul. And there are two more studies uh, by the American Institute for Research. Uh, in one study, they look at the recent period with NAEP data. In the second one, they look at the TIMS data. And with both studies, they show that the SES achievement gap is not increasing. So there's one other um, wrinkle that I think we should chat about for a minute, and that's PISA. Because the PISA data, which is very influential, is being used around the world, is generating results that are really quite different from the other surveys. It, with the PISA, we're seeing uh, much less progress. And uh, with the PISA, we're, we're seeing a lot more progress by a massively more progress by disadvantaged students as compared to the advantaged ones. So yeah, there's a lot of things about the PISA data that looks uh, different. So why do you think we're getting, PISA is getting different results? So Paul, PISA is different in two ways. Uh, for the first way, the difference is that we are seeing uh, that there's actually a decline in mathematics uh, in PISA as compared to every other test. We do not see the pattern of fluid versus crystallized knowledge uh, as far as the PISA results are concerned. Now, it, now, when we dig further into the information and looked at content analysis, which many others have done, it seems to us that uh, the PISA math is very much uh, like its reading test. It is, it is more heavily loaded with crystallized knowledge than fluid reasoning. And it could be a potential reason uh, as to why we do not see the strikingly uh, rising pattern in mathematics in PISA, which we see in other tests. So in other words, uh, PISA is giving a reading test and calling it a math test. Uh, I, I would incline to say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little exaggeration, but... Uh... But there's a lot of reading in that math test. I would, I, I think there's uh, good reason to believe that. Yeah. And, and Paul, the the second way in which uh, PISA differs is that we see uh, the SES gap actually closing uh, in PISA to a very large extent, and so much so that the gain made by the low SES student uh, is going to actually close the gap if the pattern continues. In a very short time, I think. Yes. In another decade or more or two, right? Exactly. So you, if, you, you should be rejoicing. We should all <laughs> be rejoicing if we believe PISA because uh, the SES gap is going to be gone 
you know, by mid-century for sure, right? Uh, uh, that's hopeful. We have to believe Pisa to 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 think that. Uh, so, um, well, I know our listeners are going to want to take a look at the paper in in Education Next, and uh, I personally think this is really a very important study that you have. Uh, done so much to uh, produce, Danny. So um, thank you for all the help and all the effort that you put into this. And uh, thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a pleasure. I've been speaking with Danny Shaquille, director of the EG West Center for Education Policy and a professor at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. He and I have just released a new paper on the Education Next website entitled A Half Century of Student Progress Nationwide. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.